Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rick Prado found himself in his first firefight at the age of seven. The son of a middle-class Cuban family caught in the midst of the Castro Revolution, his family fled their war-torn home for the hopes of a better life in America. Fifty years later, the Cuban refugee retired from the Central Intelligence Agency as the CIA equivalent of a two-star general. I'm your host, James Rogers, and on today's episode of Warfare, Rick joins us as the highest-ranking covert warrior to lift the veil of secrecy on U.S. secret operations post-Vietnam and during his extraordinary time as the co-founding member of the Bin Laden Task Force, both before and after 9-11. Hi, Rick. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great, James. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. Thanks for coming on. I was in Barnes & Noble the other day. I'm not going to lie. Your book was on the shelf. It stood out to me so much. I picked it up. I flicked through it. I got a copy and I was like, we've got to get this guy on the podcast because how could we not take the opportunity to delve into the life of a CIA shadow warrior? And I'm just wondering, Rick, this is your life. So where do we start? Well, I guess the best thing is to start at the beginning because uh, the beginning is what started forging my metal towards what I ended up doing. I was born in Cuba, uh, 1951. So I saw the whole Castro revolution evolve. My town was in the center of the country near the Escambray mountains where Che Guevara was had his rebels. So my town got hit several times while I was there. And so I, I literally heard gunfire and anger at the age of seven or eight. One particular incident uh, is described in the book is I'm standing by the window because I knew there was a commotion What I didn't notice that there was a gorilla underneath the parapet and he let loose automatic rounds. And, you know, I was sitting there in total shock in a positive way, both enthralled and in shock to see, you know, the damage and seeing the, uh, there was people got wounded. So at a very early age, I saw that kind of violence that comes from revolutions. However, what was even more painful was when Castro did take over, because 
The country changed completely within six months. The uh, repressions started, the confiscation of private property started. My father had a small coffee roasting company and that was confiscated six months after they took over. And he employed 10 people, so he wasn't exactly an imperialist. So the persecution started, The uh, us having to wear uniforms to go to school with the flag and colors and all the brainwashing. All that is very vivid in my mind because, again, I was, I guess I was nine when the revolution actually took place. So I think that that started my concerns about communism and witnessing it first rate. My father found out that I'm, I was supposed to be on the list to go to Russia to study. That was one of the things that they were doing. My uncle was a professor at the school I was at. And um, my father said, we got to get him out of here. I, I will not have my son grow under these uh, circumstances. I'm an only child. So uh, imagine putting your only child on a plane to a country you've never been to and may not even visit, uh, not for financial reasons. We were solid middle class in Cuba to sub, you know, sub-poverty in the United States. So I think that those series of events started forging you know, my medal for dealing with stress, for dealing with things. I landed in an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado, turned 11 at the orphanage. And I was there for eight months before my parents kept their promise and were able to get out. So your life, Rick, could have been very, very different if you weren't able to escape from Cuba. You most definitely would have been sent over to Russia and had a, a very different education. But instead, you make it to America, your family follow you. And what is it in life that set you on a track to join the CIA? Well... Again, I felt the debt of honor fairly early on for this country, this wonderful country that took me in and my family. I was a little bit of a rough kind of guy growing up, got in a lot of fights in school, that kind of stuff. And it never felt right because I had such a great home front. I was just hanging around with, with the wrong crowd. And there was an incident in my first semester of college where the hippies were going to burn the flag, this is like 1971, I believe. They were going to burn down the American flag. They announced it tomorrow where we're going to burn the flag, take it down and burn it. And I said, that's not going to happen. So I had a couple of my friends come over and something was five or six of us. And it was about 15, 20 hippies. When they showed up to start lowering that flag, a fight broke out and uh, wasn't a very fair fight. It was only five of us and 20 of them. So it was easy for us. There was torn beads and torn t-shirts all over the place. And but I looked up and I saw that American flag still waving. And it was the first time in my life that I felt proud of being in a fight. It was for a purpose. And six months later, I joined an elite military unit called Pararescue. It's one of the uh, Air Force's uh, special operations uh, forces. And that began my interest in service. That, I guess that's the main thing, paying back that debt of honor. Well, let's move through your military and your secret intelligence career, because one thing about your book is that it offers a glimpse into the shadow wars, I suppose you could call them, that America and the West have been involved in since the end of the Vietnam era. You've had duty stations in Central and South America, in the Philippines and all over the world. And of course, you were directly involved in the Bin Laden task force and those events post 9-11 and before 9-11 as well. So what was your first active operation that you can tell us about? Yeah, well, with the agency in pararescue, I, I only went through the training. I got my beret in late 1972 and the war Vietnam was over. That was the reason that I had joined because I wanted to go over there and serve. 
So I stayed in the reserves, but I still wanted more. I wanted to really make a difference. I applied to the agency once. They, they were not hiring. This was in the mid-70s, like 74. I applied again in 79, early 80, and they brought me in on contract. And that was my entree. They, I got to meet them. And then when the Nicaraguan Sandinistas took over and started fomenting communism throughout Central America, Reagan had just taken power and started the Contra program, supporting the Contra revolutionaries that try to regain their country from communism. So my first experiences, which were on the ground for a little over three years in the jungles between Nicaragua and Honduras, right there in the border areas and doing incursions in and out. The first big operation that we did, well, the first thing was the fact that I was the only guy at the camps. I was the only CIA guy in the 10 counter camps for the first 14 months of that program because I could pass for something other than a gringo. So I was there as a Honduran major, uh, first a captain and then a major. And that provided me the, the ostensible cover to, to get around and to be training these individuals. But it was a very rewarding phase because here is the very same monster that destroyed my first country and is doing the same thing to the Nicaraguans and the Salvadorians de facto. And all through proxies from you know Russia through Cuba to Nicaragua. So there was a visceral satisfaction of me being there and trying to help these individuals out. And talking to the, the Contras themselves, you know, and I'm talking about the peasant fighters, they all had a personal reason for being there, risking their lives and living in really subhuman conditions. And it was all, you know, they burned down my church. They raped my daughter. They took my farm. It wasn't Lenin versus Marx or even Castro. It was just taking away my freedom. So fast forward, I, I became very close to the Miskito Indians, which are the Native Americans of the East Coast of Nicaragua and a little bit of Honduras. And I met some uh, divers that were uh, part of the guerrilla group. And I was a diver. I had the little insignia on my hat, and one of them noticed it, and we started talking. And they told me that the six of them were lobster divers. I kept that in mind when our headquarters came in with a requirement that, hey, look, we need to do more than raids and ambushes. We've been doing great with those, but we need a real left hook kind of operation here. I came up with the idea of blowing up the Puerto Cabezas port, which is in the east northeast part of Nicaragua. And the reason for it was because Puerto Cabezas was then the belly button to uh, Cuba logistics. That's where the oil and weapons and ammunition would come into Nicaragua. They would bring it over to the west side and part of it was also going to El Salvador uh, fomenting uh, revolutions there. So I trained these divers in the military version of scuba diving. I mean, they knew how to put on a set of tanks and breathe underwater, but uh, I've got them into you know compass swims and timing your kicks and compensating for the currents to make it to an objective. Uh, we worked on this for pretty much a month in an isolated island in the middle of nowhere, and then planning the devices. So the guys uh, out of the six, four made it, two washed out, and we got the green light. Once I briefed the operation to my boss, he sold it upstairs, and then they immediately approved it. So we waited for the perfect weather and the perfect, you know, no moon kind of light. And we deployed in a very small boat. It's called a panga, which is actually like a hollowed out canoe to a PT boat that was waiting for us uh, outside in the ocean. And that PT boat took us into the Nicaraguan waters under darkness. Uh, we all jumped in the water, put our canoe back in the, the panga, back in the water. The device, the explosive device, which is, it was 80 pounds of uh, C4, 
I was already on the PT boat, so it was a matter of lowering it down and putting it on, on the boat. Gave my guys the final instructions. They swam in very late at night. We wanted to make sure that there were little or no collateral damage of persons. Uh, we just wanted to destroy the pier. We didn't want to kill people. And made it back to the boat and back into Honduran waters uh, by daylight. We didn't know if the bomb had gone off. We didn't know anything until we got back and got the word that it had. And two days later, uh, I was able to see for the first time ever satellite overhead. And it was of the blown up pier and the damage that it had done. And not only did it feel really, really good, but it was a very successful operation and arguably one of the most successful operations that carried out during the whole uh, counter-revolution there against the Sandinistas. So this was a, a personal victory for you, tying back to your family ties, but also, of course, a professional victory here. And I think one thing that histories like this tell us is that it goes against this idea that the Cold War was a long peace. And instead, it shows those very hot conflicts, those periods of intense fighting that took place not only in Central and South America, but also around the world as well. In essence, would you consider yourself as being on the front line of the Cold War? Absolutely. And like you so eloquently put it, the Cold War was had many kinetic aspects to it in Angola. You know, in, in parts of Africa, in Southeast Asia, communism was spreading, and, and uh, that, that that was part of the Cold War. Latin America, of course, was was peppered with uh, different countries that were suffering insurgencies. So, yeah, I felt like I was at the pointy end of the spear representing my agency and my country, while really feeling good about making a difference and maybe paying back the people that destroyed my family. Now, I think one of the most fascinating things about your career, Rick, is that I've worked in terrorism and counterterrorism for a long time now, both in terms of advisory roles and teaching these elements. And I've interviewed a lot of people over the years. But I think you're one of the few who were working on counterterrorism issues before 9-11. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. I had an affinity for counterterrorism. As a matter of fact, in, my, in college, I had done a paper on some Latin American uh, insurgencies and terrorist insurgencies, narco-terrorism. And uh, I had an opportunity to, uh, in 1988, the counterterrorist center was created by one of my mentors, Dewey Claridge, in 1986. So my first assignment was in 1988. I went to a Latin American country which I, I cannot mention the name, but um, it had a serious, two serious insurgency going on, one of them Maoist, the other one communist. And that was my first CT uh, job. Literally, uh, I recruited a terrorist from the Maoist organization and ran him for well over a year before he disappeared. I don't know if he was found out or if he was just taken back into the uh, jungles to do his revolutionary duty. But uh, that was just the beginning of counterterrorism for the agency. And, and, you know, before the Cold War, for the most part, we were fighting it through the diplomatic circle. We make our, our contacts and recruit individuals either in the business sectors or in the cocktail circuit for diplomats. And now comes terrorism and counterterrorism and counter-narcotics also. Now we have to go a little different direction here. We, we're not going to meet people that can give us information on terrorism at a diplomatic function. So we started having to deal with different kind of people than what we had been used to, rougher characters, um, which forged, you know, uh, rougher uh, case officers, you know, our, our officers uh, 
that were had military backgrounds really flourished during this time because they had a little bit different molding to their character. They could come across as somebody that was serious. So it was a major change for the agency going from the diplomatic circuit for the Cold War and into a more proactive working with people that are criminals uh, in any way you put it and definitely terrorists. Absolutely. This is a rough job. It's a difficult job. It's a hard job. And one of the things about counterterrorism is that we know that there are overlaps between organised crime, between terrorist organisations and warlords. And so to get through to the terrorist organisation and to counter them, you're going to have to deal with these people along the way, which is no easy task. Absolutely. Very, very tough. Now, in late 1995, you became the Deputy Chief of Station and the co-founding member of the Bin Laden Task Force. And just to repeat that, that was in 1995, when most of the people around the world would never have heard of Osama Bin Laden. What was it like working on that task force in the early days? I can imagine it must have been incredibly politically frustrating, because I know that you guys knew where he was, and you could have taken him out if you wanted to, but you weren't allowed. Is that right? Well, that is correct. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, starting with who Bin Laden was, I was a branch chief in counterterrorism. I had just got my GS-15, which is our colonel rank. And the chief of ops called me in and said, your name has been nominated to become the uh, deputy chief of station for a task force that we're forming. And I said, great, thank you. Um, what is it? You know, I mean, who are we targeting? And uh, my, my then boss said, Osama bin Laden. And I said, who? So you're absolutely right, James. We, <laughs> wow. Not, not only did the, the people in the masses didn't know, but most people in the agency did not know. Mike Scheuer, which was the, uh, the senior guy in the task force, I was his deputy and senior ops guy. He was the one that had been tracking bin Laden. He was a brilliant guy. So fast forward, heck, not even six months. We knew exactly where he was. He was in Khartoum. We had a, a very personal friend of mine, a legendary at Green Beret named Billy Waugh, was uh, the head of the surveillance team there in Khartoum at the time. And he literally knew exactly when he was going to be where, the, the, the car that he drove, the, the, the level of security or not that he had. He often went out with his car all by himself. He had a white Mercedes that he would drive around. So we knew what, that he was there and what he was doing. But most importantly, we also knew what he was working on. Uh, there were several large terrorist camps that were being financed by bin Laden. And these were hardcore former Mujahideen, pretty you know, hard people training in, in Sudan. So the fact that we have intelligence from several uh, levels telling us that Osama bin Laden is becoming somewhat of a godfather of terrorism and forging these, these networks, because Al-Qaeda means the base. And the base was that, kind of like a centralized place where different groups could actually get funding and make attacks. They use surrogates uh, where, wherever possible also. So that whole combination was uh, pretty new to us, and, and, but he was who he was. We knew that. And just think, James, if we would have rendered bin Laden in 1996 or 1997, you know, the coal wouldn't have happened. The bombing of our, our two embassies in Africa probably would have happened. And even 9-11 would probably not have happened. So, yes, we all enjoyed 2020 hindsight. But in this case, it was the lack of political will 
at different levels, not, not just at the government level, but even in the agency, I think, that it, people did not have the backbone at the time. And that's what happened with 9-11. 9-11 showed us that we were at war with terrorism. You know, uh, having a war that is outside of your home is not as personal as when somebody actually hits you at home the way that they hit us on 9-11. So it was very frustrating for all of us. I had to leave because uh, my wife had a, a medical uh, issue there uh, during that time. So I only did about, about a year or so uh, in the Bin Laden task force. But that frustration kept through. And when the cold happened and then the, the embassy bombings happened, there were a lot of loud voices talking about, hey, you know, we, we could have prevented this. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Beauforts were bad. For when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's an incredible turning point in history and presents a range 
of counterfactuals. We're talking about the bombing of the USS Cole. We're talking about the almost simultaneous destruction of the US embassies in Nairobi, in Kenya, and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania in 1998, just a few years after this task force was set up. And what you're saying is that, you know, bin Laden could have been taken out earlier to prevent these and potentially to have prevented 9-11. But my question to you is, was there the legal prerequisite to do this? Was there the evidence needed to either take bin Laden out as a preemptive strike of self-defense, something which, of course, becomes quite common in counterterrorism later on, or to arrest him and bring him to justice. Are you saying that was actually possible? The bringing him to justice was legally possible. Uh, we had sufficient intelligence to know that he was fomenting terrorism, sponsoring terrorism with millions and millions of dollars, extorting money from uh, Saudis in order to support his efforts. So we knew what he was doing, uh, especially by 1998. We definitely had quadraphonic intel coming in about everything that he was doing. But he had not yet killed Americans until, you know, the coal and, and everything else. So a lethal finding wasn't in place, but it could have been gotten. We got the lethal finding after 9-11 when uh, President Bush on 17 September signed the lethal finding that allowed us to go into Afghanistan and start hunting these folks down. So but we had the intelligence and we had the legal parameters to render him to justice, to bring him out, out of Khartoum. And this would have not been a, a very hard mission, James. You know, they're, their guys are rugged and they are fighters, but they're not a personal security kind of folks. They are they're terrorists. For us to bring in one of our elite teams uh, at the right time and gotten them out of the country would have been a fairly easy operation with a minimum chance of even loss of life. Well, 9-11 did happen, and we are still dealing with the consequences of that moment in history. But when it comes to your book, I've read so many of the reviews as well, and you've got some excellent people who are just singing your praises. None more so than Kofa Black, the former director of CIA Counterterrorist Center. He says that you're no stay-at-home bureaucrat. Rick served in harm's way with exceptional dedication and courage. And so what I'm feeling here, Rick, is that when 9-11 did happen, you were put, well, pretty much on the front line of that fight as well. Where were you sent directly and how quickly after the events of 9-11? Yes, I was chief of operations at the Counter-Terrorist Center. I had made a senior grade in 1998. I had served in a uh, radical Muslim country in Africa as a chief of station in, in 2000. And in early 2001, I think it was around May that I took over as the chief of ops at the Counter-Terrorist Center. And um, of course, 9-11 happened shortly thereafter. We immediately started putting together a war capability. How are we going to take the war to them. And the first part of the plan was the Northern Alliance. The agency did two things very, very right before 9-11. One was that we developed the drone, the Predator drones with the Hellfire missiles. That was something that the agency helped finance and develop and tested. And Kofor Black was a very big part of that. The other one was keeping our relationship with the Northern Alliance, which were anti-Taliban and they did not support 
terrorism, and they were not in the drug trade either. So they were a unique group of individuals. And, and as you will recall, you know, the, the whole pre-9-11 op that Al-Qaeda did was to kill the leader, Masood. Two reporters uh, came in for an interview and they blew themselves up and killed him. But w- those two things were in place. So when 9-11 happened, we knew we had uh, some a base of support and a safe haven that we could start operating. The first thing that I remember was all of a sudden we had all kinds of money in, in CTC. That became the number one priority, not only for my agency, but for the U.S. government writ large, it was to get back at these folks. And one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that CIA was the first boots on the ground in Afghanistan. The interesting thing there, Rick, is that we had Toby Harnden on the podcast to talk about his new book, First Casualty, where he's been analysing now for, it seems like, 20 years or so, the role of Team Alpha in those early days of the war in Afghanistan, before it was really even a major war there. So what was your role around this? Perhaps you can provide us some broader context to what was going on as those same events of Team Alpha. Well, you got to understand the counterterrorist center uh, has a very broad uh, account. The, the war in Afghanistan was the primary, but we still had Hezbollah to deal with, you know, uh, and Palestinian terrorism. So as chief of ops, I had to stay on top of all of that. I had a great crew of group chiefs and they had great branch chiefs. You cannot micromanage in, in our business. You have to be able to uh, entrust your people and delegate authorities to them to the lowest level possible. So the majority of my job was you know, making sure my guys were doing what they were doing, being able to brief the seventh floor. And of course, calling back uh, Hank Crumpton, who was a personal friend of mine who came back to lead the special operations uh, that were going to take place in Afghanistan. We started bringing in special military. That was part of, I went down to Delta. We went to uh, SEAL Team 6. They designated folks to join us uh, to provide expertise. But you know, uh, six months after doing this job, I had the itch. I, I needed to get back on the street. And um, I'm a field officer. I'm a, Kofor's accolades could not resonate more with me because I'm happiest on the street. And so I proposed to Kofor, this is very early on, post 9-11, that we were missing the boat on fighting these kind of guys because we were doing it in military theaters and doing very successfully in the military theaters of Afghanistan and subsequently Iraq. But this is before Iraq. But what I had discovered through my career in the counterterrorist business by then was that you don't target the heads of an organization necessarily because they're hard to get at. And most of those organizations are like hydras. So the second is you don't target the shooters. The shooters are are the ones that blow themselves up are dime a dozen. And they don't even make good agents, as a matter of fact, even if you were to recruit one. The target for me was the soft underbelly of, of any kind of terrorist organization is their support mechanisms. In order to have support mechanisms, the people have to have a persona, a public persona. And, and that was very evident to me in my very first uh, Latin America tour for counterterrorism, where within six months working with the locals, we wrapped up 13 support mechanisms for this one Maoist organization. And some were lawyers, some were doctors, you know, some were college professors. So those are the ones that are are very hard to replace. The shooters, you take one out, 12 more volunteer. But when you take out that nugget of support that the ones that provides the weapons, that provides the medicines, the, the safe houses, 
the travel, the training necessary. Those are the individuals that really do harm if you remove them. So the program that I came up with and that Kofor loved and apparently so did uh, George Tennant was to do a proactive targeting of individuals in all these organizations. What I asked for was I want 20 to 30 names of bona fide bad guys associated with Hezbollah, associated with Al-Qaeda and so on, and get legal justifications under their Title 50 uh, and, and presidential finding. And the idea was to make book, as we call it, to get patterns of life on these really bad support mechanism guys that were diehard terrorists, supporters, and then come up with three operational scenarios for each of them on how to disrupt them when the time came. So picture that we target a guy in in a particular country because we know that he has helped there was one guy that we knew had helped with the, with the 9-11, as a matter of fact, and he was still doing the same thing. So if you target a guy like that and you have a couple of others in the same organization and you start hearing the chatter that we had before 9-11, that they are up to something, that they are going to hurt us. But we didn't know, know what. You know, a lot of people think that, that intelligence is this beautiful puzzle that you put the pieces together and you actually have a picture to go by. Yeah, it's a puzzle, but half the pieces are missing and there's nothing to go by for the most part. So we knew that there was something happening, that Al-Qaeda was playing something big. You know, when people start going quiet on communications, people that we have on their surveillance start disappearing. That's a clue to us that, hey, they're up to something. If at that moment we would have had my program in place and we would have taken out three different Al-Qaeda supporters in three different locations, that would have probably stopped them for a while because they would feel that they were penetrated. How did they know that it wasn't Osama bin Laden, that it was Abu Abu Muhammad over here, who happens to be the main guy in this particular country, representing Al-Qaeda, and all of a sudden, these three guys are disrupted or compromised or neutralized. So it wasn't a hit squad. It wasn't a punitive kind of endeavor. The whole idea of that program was to do a very thorough, proactive intel collection with teeth, in other words, operational teeth that we could implement at the drop of a hat. So while other facets of the CIA were out there hunting militants themselves or trying to take down and track down and, and find Osama bin Laden before he escapes from the Tora Bora Mountains and, and into Pakistan, your mission here is to really, really unsettle Al-Qaeda, to make them feel like they've been infiltrated to divide them from within and to maybe make them cease operations ever so slightly until they can get a grip on how people know the intelligence of where their key operatives are. How successful were you in that mission? Well, as you uh, read in the book, they they didn't let me talk about uh, the actual successes, but uh, everything that we were legally able to do, we did. The sleuth on work that we did was extremely good. Unfortunately, the political will wasn't there. And that came up, you know, for me, James, for me to leave the job that I had as chief of operations for the counterterrorist center, for a guy like me, that is a hell of a moniker to carry, you know, but I needed to go back on the street and I made that sacrifice. And a lot of people thought, what, would they, what did he do wrong that he's now you know, running around with 12 guys instead of the 500 that I was managing uh, in, in CTC writ large? So that whole evolution that came from 
the frustrations of not being able to do the actual operations. We had them planned. We briefed them. As a matter of fact, I, I briefed the vice president of the United States, Dick Cheney at the time, on one operation that I was personally on the ground with two of my guys when we got what we call glass. We got video on the individual that, that was in question. And I briefed that to the vice president and Condoleezza Rice in the White House. And they loved the program and blessed it. Unfortunately, you know, as, as time went past, you know, the 9-11, the shock of 9-11, you know, the testosterone starts to drop and the backbone calcium also starts to drop and politics take over again. And you cannot have a successful special operations entity that is guided primarily by politics. And I think this is one of has been one of the downfall. Well, not the downfall, but one of the things that have really set the agency back, like the FBI, is it becoming politicized more than it should be. Shouldn't be politicized at all. You know, we, you know, we are tasked with collecting intelligence and carrying out covert action on behalf of the president of the United States. That's our job, not politics, not favors, not prejudice about one outcome or the other. So I saw the writing on the wall. I mean, I, I had briefed the vice president, got a green light to proceed and go back and brief whenever we were ready. And it fell dead in, in, on our seventh floor. My agency leaders at the time, and I quote in the book, uh, they said, we have to, as what the DDO, the director of operations at the time, Jim Pavitt said, was, Mr. Director, there is no doubt in our mind that Prado and his team can not only do this, but that they can get away with it. And you can imagine, I'm sitting at that table across from my director and, and next to my uh, director of operations. and getting that those words i'm going like yes we're finally going to be able to you know cry havoc and, and and let loose the dogs of war and then he added however mr director we need to really consider the political ramifications of doing this in this neutral country if we weren't going to and this wasn't necessarily an assassination or a killing this was primarily being a, a disruptive render or a compromise. Those were the things that we could do. Compromise the individual, plant stuff in their cars, call the cops. Rendition, where we actually extricate them out of there. That's the hardest thing to do. And the third, which we did have a lethal finding, was if it was legalized or if, or if it was authorized under that writ, that we, we could do it. But this one, when I saw that we were not allowed to do this operation, I couldn't in good conscience keep some of, of my top teammates doing nothing but repelling upside down shooting. That's not what our careers are like. And as a matter of fact, you mentioned the, the book, First Casualties, which I read, and it's an excellent book. There were two guys in that book that were in my team afterwards. So these, these were seasoned individuals that really knew operations and had the, the backbone to go into you know, bad neighborhoods that are being watched by the local service and try to get patterns of life on really dangerous people that if you get caught, they're not going to take you to court. They're going to kill you and torture you and kill you. I couldn't keep that quality of guys and gals because I had some women in the team operationally. And two of the three of my analysts were female targeting officers from my bin Laden days. And it was, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make in my life was to you know, shut down that team because I truly, truly believed that we would have made a difference. And I retired shortly thereafter. One of the things that I hear time and time again throughout my career, Rick, is that 
the war itself, that prolonged 20 years that has only just come to an end, could have been avoided largely if the special elements of the US military and intelligence agency, along with the vital support of air power and, as you mentioned, drones, were left to do their job. Well, there could have been the initial elements of victory achieved, and that is, of course, to render Al-Qaeda no longer a working organisation. There was none of this country-building, nation-building, emancipatory agenda at this point. That came longer with the politics and justifying a prolonged stay in Afghanistan and then, of course, Iraq later on as an even more wider broadening of this idea of the axis of evil. But when it comes down to those initial months post 9-11, that specific endgame that was in place, those objectives that were narrow and clear, do you think that the CIA and related agencies that you were working with could have achieved that if you'd been left to do what you were meant to do? Absolutely. You know, our military had a little bit of lag time in in spinning up and getting out there. Uh, As a matter of fact, when the first Green Beret team landed in Afghanistan, it was the agency guys who vectored those helicopters in. So we had the resources. We had some great allies. You know, the difference between Iran, I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq is that the world stood with us for Afghanistan. All our allies stepped up and contributed to that fight. And even our enemies, they kept their mouth shut. Iraq was a very unpopular war, not only here at home, but also worldwide. It was not seen as a justifiable act uh, where nobody could dispute the fact that we had the right to uh, try to neutralize the threat that had killed well over 3,000 Americans in one day. So yes, I think if the resources would have been dedicated, if the gloves would have really been taken off, if we would have brought in with our allies the amount of force that we could and continued it for the duration without other distractions, like you mentioned Iraq, we would definitely have put Al-Qaeda into a very, very non, barely functional, if not completely destroyed. Uh, and obviously, yes, you know, getting bin Laden was important, but bin Laden alone, at that time, the Al-Qaeda was already a, an entity and a very powerful entity and a very well-connected entity. So we had an opportunity to save lives. And, you know, you hit on something that is a very big deal to me because I've served in the military and both my sons are military, is the, uh, the romantic political concept of nation building. You build nations that are allies. You help our allies build if they are, like, like in the case of the Ukraine, those are the people we need to help. We do not need to reconstruct the country that has attacked us and hurt us. We take them down and we warn them, you don't want us to come back. If we would have done that in Afghanistan, if we would have spent one or two years in Afghanistan doing nothing more than you know, destroying ta- the Taliban and destroying Al-Qaeda, and then a new regime comes in, we try to help them where we can, but we extricate ourselves from the painful deaths of how many thousands of our youth and the trillions of dollars that were spent there into what end? Well, I suppose it's here that we come full circle and bring this history right up to date because you mentioned Ukraine and of course one of our key focuses at the moment is the threat posed by Russia to the West, to NATO and it's one of the things that at the forefront of our mind 
And it's where a lot of the funding is going in terms of defence agencies. One of the announcements today, for example, is vast amounts of investment in countering hypersonic missiles. And so we're returning more to, I suppose you could say, a a peer-on-peer competition period, which you might be able to make parallels to the Cold War. But would you say that the threat of terrorism is gone? Is it time to turn a blind eye to terrorist groups around the world to remove that funding and put it towards Russia? Or is that a costly mistake that is likely going to come back round and bite us? I don't think that's an option. Terrorism will continue to reign. You know, just the fact that we haven't had an attack in the United States since 9-11 of that magnitude, there's been some smaller things. But that in itself shows that we have been doing our work. Because if anybody thinks that the terrorists have stopped targeting us, that that is a fantasy. They still want to get to us. And as a matter of fact, they hope we're distracted. The same claim was done uh, about us taking the eye, our eyes off the ball for on terrorism in the Cold War, that we became omnifocused on terrorism at the expense of targeting Russia and China. And that is not true. We never took our eyes off the Russian target of the Cold War aspect of it with China, Iran. Those are still things that we did. However, the resources of personnel and monies have to be managed. I am surprised that people were surprised that Putin attacked Ukraine. Uh, People were going, how could he do that? He said he was going to reconstitute the Soviet Union, the day that he came to power. And he has repeated that several times and shown earlier aggressions, uh, Georgia for one. So maintaining the balance between our major operational directives that are put down by our government to every intelligence agency, this is our priority of things. That needs to be maintained both against the terrorism, it's not gone away. And if we allow that to flourish, we will get hurt again and even in the United States. Well, Rick, I think that's such an important message to finish on. Thank you so much for your time. And tell us, what is the title of the book and where can we buy it? Well, the book is called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. And you could get it at any bookstore, uh, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Amazon. It's doing very well. And uh, as I think you stated earlier, uh, it did make top 10 in the uh, New York Times bestseller list uh, a week out from uh, from its release. Well, congratulations. That is no easy feat. And you are always welcome on the podcast. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Love to be back in the future, James. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.